to get us started, I thought I might go to Alex Munter. Most of you will know who Alex is, but if you don't, Alex Munter is the president and CEO for the, for the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario. So Alex, why don't you tell us why we're here? Well, well, thank you. And uh, great to see everybody this morning. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot going on in, uh, in our province and in our country and the world. So you'll, you'll be forgiven if you miss this piece of news uh, in the summer, which is that the Ontario government made what really is a, a historic uh, commitment uh, to increase the capacity of the children's healthcare system across the province and across the hospitals, mental health agencies, and children's treatment center, children's rehabilitation services. The single biggest investment in the capacity uh, of our pediatric, our children's healthcare system in this province, well, really ever. Uh, and that was um, the, uh, the, the result uh, of work that we did together and then that we did with our partners uh, in, in, in government, elected, Ministry of Health, Ontario Health, uh, really recognizing a problem. And I think, you know, the problem, you know, we, all of our organizations went into uh, the pandemic uh, with already very significant backlogs of care. And it became apparent very quickly uh, that uh, a bad situation was getting worse uh, with the impacts uh, of the pandemic. And really, I mean, we all know each other. We've all worked together on many things. We started to kind of formalize our relationships really in the first few months of the pandemic into something called the Children's Health uh, Coalition uh, in Ontario and um, started working together to ultimately produce Make Kids Count which is a plan really across the continuum of care to uh, address uh, these backlogs of care, to address really what is an un undersized system. How do we, how do we right size uh, the pediatric uh, health system? Um, and uh, you know, this time last year, uh, really put into kind of sharp relief, I think for everyone, just how undersized uh, the system uh, was. And uh, you know, really, to to give credit to, to Minister Jones, she visited Chio, she visited every hospital here, she visited mental health agencies. I'm sure she would have visited children's treatment centers if she funded them. Um, <laughs> that's a, that's a different ministry. Um, and um, she probably collected 42 copies of this because every time she um, every time she showed up, we gave her a copy. And um, uh, really, uh, and and here we are. The announcement came in the summer, and so. Um, we're still awaiting, you know, some of the some of the details on the on on uh, on the specifics, um, but we're starting now to do that work, and it's you know it's an, and it's an exciting moment, I think, certainly uh, in our organization, and I think in, in many others as we think about um, what right sizing pediatric healthcare looks like. Thank you. Um, so so Alex, this is a large group. You're, you're covering obviously pediatrics, and it's cross sectional. Can you maybe tell us what brought you together um, and what you're hoping to achieve? Sure. And, you know, uh, let me just tell you kind of the, the, the Chio story, because I think it's emblematic of, um, you know, everybody here would have a, a version of the same. So Chio is almost 50 years old, uh, 50th birthday next year. You're all invited. And um, um, Chio has half as many beds as it did when it opened. And if you think about that really, uh, that's a good news and a bad news story. 
and really temporally a good news and a bad news story in the first 25 years and the second 25 years. First 25 years, uh, you saw a huge, um, saw huge advances in children's health, um, all kinds of public health uh, measures, whether that's immunization, helmet laws, seatbelt laws, um, uh, better prenatal care, um, uh, research and innovation improving uh, medical and surgical uh, techniques. And so more and more of the activity moving from inpatient to outpatient. Um, you know, I, I grew up in Ottawa. Um, I still have my tonsils. Um, I would be rare in my, you know, fourth grade class. Like, everybody got their tonsils out. And, 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 and kids, I, I remember, you know, my nine-year-old self would have thought that she was a spa, right? Because you'd hear about, you know, get a week off school and get lots of ice cream. And the nurses are, like, just so amazing. Um, I, I remember... Um, claiming to my mother I had a sore throat and that I need to go to Chio to get my tonsils <laughs> out just to, just to get a week off school and get all that ice cream. Well, now, um, of course, that's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a day, that's day surgery, right? Um, and so, um, uh, you know, that's the first 25 years. Then we get to the kind of the last 25 years, and you, we start to see um, uh, an increase in prevalence. Um, so we see more childhood cancer, rates of childhood cancer going up. We see uh, uh, depression, anxiety, behavioral diagnoses uh, increasing. Uh, we see really childhood obesity really for the first time, type 2 diabetes. So, uh, and we see population growth. 20%, like from 2000 to 2020, the child and youth population grew by 20%. So population growth, more prevalence, and a constrained system where the focus was elsewhere. You know, the single biggest focus of the federal-provincial agreement in 2004, if you remember, um, was wait times for cataracts, hips, knees. Those are not big sellers at our places, right? Uh, and so um, we had this really constrained system uh, while the need grew and grew and grew. And that's the problem that we're, we're trying to solve. Um, and, um, you know, we, we got to a point, uh, as a result of that, that in our region and actually in most regions, uh, in Ontario, kids were waiting longer than adults. Uh, and I think we can all intuitively understand what that means, that, that there's a lifelong impact of that in terms of development, education, impact on families. Um, and so that's the problem we need to solve. And, and so I feel compared to a year ago, or, you know, a bit of a downer a year ago, um, I, I, I really do feel quite optimistic um, that we're in, a, we're in a building phase now. We're in a, um, we're in a, in a phase of, of, of catching up, recognizing this is a 20-year problem. And so this is not a flick of switch. This is not, we're not going to eliminate those backlogs. We're not going to get on top of this, um, this viral season. It's going to take us a few years, but we're on the path. So not everybody here um, is in pediatrics, or, but most of them will have a vested interest in pediatrics, um, or they'll have a general interest in policy and healthcare and all that sort of stuff. So maybe I'll, I'll go to Bruce. So Bruce Squires is the president of the McMaster's Children's Hospital. Um, and Bruce, I'm just, the, the, there's that saying that children aren't just little adults. Um, 
maybe you can explain what does that mean and why why does that matter? Yeah, thanks very much, uh, Matt, and good morning, everyone. Uh, yeah, what does that mean? Children aren't tiny adults. I mean, it means a lot of things. Uh, those of us who are parents can, I'm sure, identify with, yeah, <laughs> children are not tiny adults. But, you know, in, in the healthcare context, what, uh, what I, I think we're talking about, the fact, is the fact that kids' needs are different and what we can do to address those needs needs to be um, needs to be different. Uh, let's look first at the fact that you know children and youth have unique physical, emotional, social, and developmental needs, and those needs actually evolve in the course of their development as a child. Right, the needs of a neonate are remarkably different from the needs of our 11, 12, 13 year olds, let alone a 16 or a 17 year old. As well, you know, when we think about about children and youth, we all think about this notion of developmental windows. So when we address those social, those emotional, those physical needs is perhaps more critical than it is for you know, other members of the population, for the adult population. You know, second really key point is kids come with a home and a community environment and with family dynamics that play such a big role in who they are, but what they experience. And so when we provide healthcare for kids, we have to be that much more focused on the implications and the nature of those other dynamics. And you know, the third thing that, that I'd say, and, and uh, you know, I, I, I try to simplify things sometimes. And so I think about, I recently had an MRI. Okay, so so certainly a, 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 a complex, but a relatively straightforward procedure, right? They prepped me a little bit. I went, had the, had the test, got out, went home. Okay, so let's think about that for a, for a child or for a youth. For many of them, that has to start first with a focus session with one of our child life specialists, just to talk about in the terms of a child, what's going to happen here? What are you going to feel? What are you going to see? How are we going to help you through it? For some, that prepares them and they're able to, to have that simple diagnostic procedure. For others, you know what? That's just not going to be enough. And so we actually have to bring in a whole other care team, an anesthesia group to do a general anesthetic so that that child can have that simple diagnostic procedure. So, so what, you know, so that difference in intensity, but also in specialization for a child and youth versus what might be required in the rest of the population means that we can't assume that what works in the rest of the system as we plan is going to work for children and youth. We need to make sure we've got a focus on the different needs of that population. Thank you. So uh, as you maybe have noticed, I'm gonna kind of go down the line here and introduce people as we move along. Um, so uh, my, my next question is actually going to be for, for two of our people here. So Jennifer Ch Churchill is the CEO for Empowered Kids Ontario. And um, Ronnie Cohn, um, most of you will know him, and he is the president and CEO for Sick Kids. Um, so the stakes are higher for intervention with, with, for children, all right? Um, we, we don't want to miss the, miss the opportunity to work and intervene at a timely matter for, for the kids. Um, why, 
what does it mean for children not to have timely access to surgery treatment when missing development milestones in mental health? Yeah, so thank you. Let me start because I think you see the continuum of the problem through our two answers here. Uh, and I'm just gonna give you one example of many, many, but to illustrate for the non-pediatricians what it means for a child with a medical problem to wait for a procedure. So take a child with a curvature of their spine. They're being seen, they have a curvature of the spine around 45 degrees. And if you look at the standard of cares around North America or Europe or Australia, you would have to do that surgery within six months. Now we can't do that right now. In fact, our children waiting a year, 18 months sometimes. So what happens during this waiting period is that this curvature of the spine turns from 45 degrees to 60 or 70 or 80. Now let me explain to you what that actually means practically. A surgery by an orthopedic surgeon who does this for a living of a 45 degree spine takes about two and a half hours. The child goes on a regular unit and two days later, if everything goes well, goes home. Now this surgery right now in Ontario turns into a nine hour surgery. Turns into a nine hour surgery that most children require during the surgery, a lot of blood supply because the co more complicated the surgery is, the more risky it is. And all these children require blood transfusions, which in the beginning, if we could do it earlier, most likely wouldn't be the case. And then there's a whole effect afterwards. These children have to go to the intensive care unit for a couple of days. Then they have to go to the floor for a couple of days. And the entire rehabilitation process that would otherwise involve just outpatient physiotherapy now turns into a very intense process. And Jennifer will talk about this. And I just want to mention one additional piece, and, and Bruce touched on it, but we never talk about it enough because it's difficult to capture. We never talk about the social costs of this. I, I, I think I explained to all of you the medical implication, but children have parents who cannot go to work. They cannot go to school. And the impact on the social costs is something that we almost never really talk about and is probably as important as all the other things we are mentioning here. But Jennifer, take it on from the rehab sure. perspective. So in case you're wondering who Empowered Kids Ontario is, as we're sitting here with lots of hospital people, we're the association that brings together Ontario's child development and rehab sector. If you are a parent, a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, a friend, a neighbor, a teacher, of a child who is developing differently. Maybe they're not speaking, maybe they're not socializing, maybe they're not moving, or maybe they're moving too much, then you likely need services from our system. And you know, people are looking at this large group going like, oh my gosh, there's so many of you here. Do I hear that echo? <laughs> um, a group of seven of us, is that what we are? We've been together so long, I don't even notice. Um, but the reality is, is the conversation about children's health care 
isn't an either or. It isn't either surgery or ambulatory or diagnostics or community-based care. It's all of this care together. So if your child is waiting for speech therapy or the child that you love, in Ontario right now, that wait is significant. It can be years. The government has listened to our request for a continuum investment, and they um, have delivered on that. So what happens when we've got this surgical backlog that came about as that was worsened during COVID? The very same services that those post-op kids need are the same services that those children who are developing differently also need. They need access to rehab professionals. So understandably, post-op kids must have priority for rehab. We all get that. We all understand that. But what happens in that is it pushes the wait list lower, down, down, down. If you're waiting for speech therapy or physiotherapy, the minute that child recover, needs recovery from that spinal surgery, they jump to the top of that list and all the other kids get pushed further down. So we are an important part of that continuum. Community-based care for families is essential. We help kids reach developmental milestones and set them up for success. And that's why this aspect of the system needed to be a part of that Ministry of Health investment, which was really revolutionary because this part of the children's health system lives in MCCSS. It doesn't live in MOH. So the vision of the government to actually invest across systems and sectors is remarkable. And we are grateful for that because this is part of our solution for right-sizing that health system. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to go over here with uh, uh, Julia Hasenberg, who is the uh, president and CEO for Holland Blue Review Kids Rehabilitation Hospital. Um, so it was back in 2018, 2019, Mark Brittnell from KPMG talked about Canada having a five-year time frame for an unrecoverable health human resources issue. Um, so we know it's a big issue. And it's obviously going to be a big issue in childcare. Um, make kids count is about catching up. Um, are there professionals out there who can help with this critical right sizing? Um, how are you navigating the, the health human resources issue? Yeah, thanks. And again, thanks everybody for being here and, and for being interested in, in what is our daily, everyday passion. Um, so there, there are, of course, several answers to the question. I'll start with saying a couple of things about Holland Blue Review and, and how we're doing. Um, just, I'll give you a few numbers and I, I want to talk to you about the broader story. Um, working with our partners at Ontario Health, we really prioritized what were the programs out of the Make Kids Count uh, historic investment of funding that we need to get, we needed to get up and running. Uh, and we needed to get them up and running for this September because we all know, we all remember what the viral season was like last year. We didn't want to repeat that. So where we focused uh, at Hall and Bloorview uh, with targeted recruitment, we've done well. So for our inpatient recruitment, for example, uh, we've got 83, in, in total, we've got 83% of that recruitment of our mate for our Make Kids Count plan on inpatients. Our day program, which is a really important pressure release valve for inpatients, uh, we're at 99% uh, Staff, my team likes me to be precise. Uh, I, I'm going to call that 100% for these purposes. Um, across the board, in terms of our recruitment for our entire Make Kids Count plan, we're at about 63%. So we're doing it. 
what was different about Make Kids Count um, and the conversations we were having with the ministry from the very beginning was we were talking not only about size and right sizing and building the appropriate capacity that we knew we needed, but we also needed to do it in a different way than the way we've been doing it to date. It wasn't just about recruitment per se, it's about high quality jobs that were gonna be attractive to our candidates. We as a system, again, over decades, so this isn't blaming any particular government, it's certainly not blaming any particular person in this room. Over decades and decades, we as a system have gotten pretty much addicted to a couple of things. Uh, one is overtime. So unless most of your nurses are doing overtime, you're actually not fully staffed. Um, we became addicted to contract roles, so non-permanent roles that allowed us to flex, and that was what enabled us to be efficient, and we're very proud in Ontario of efficiency, as we should be. But what that meant over time is we couldn't create that kind of stable, high-quality employment that we really needed to be a part of our employer promise to our teams. So from the very beginning, and I really remember these conversations, we talked together, which was really important about Make Kids Count, uh, because typically when we go to the ministry, we go to Ontario Health, it's a binary conversation. We don't go as a gang across the continuum. Um, and we said, this is long-term stable base funding. If it's anything short of that, we're never gonna be able to deliver on the plan. We're not gonna pull the wool over your eyes. We're not gonna tell you we can do something we can't do. So we believed, and I think we're, start, we're seeing the proof of that, that if we can offer great jobs, there are people out there who want those jobs, even in our very overstretched healthcare system. So what are the complexities related to that? When we talk about healthcare human resources, it's not just the clinical resources, it's everybody. Uh, anybody who works in a hospital knows how complex the, the, the work of the finance team in a hospital is. Every finance team, I guarantee you, anybody who is in this place has vacancies and are having trouble holding on to people. So it's not just the clinical teams. But um, if Karima Velji were here, I'm sure everyone has heard her say this, we can't recruit our way out of this problem, we also have to retain our outstanding staff. And that is hard to do because we have put them through a lot for a very, very long time. Um, if Barb Collins were here, the CEO of Humber River, uh, she would say when she was a bed bedside nurse, uh, she would say when dinosaurs roamed the earth, I won't say <laughs> that. Um, she would say routinely census was 85% and that's what you expected. You could spend time with your patients, you could spend time with caregivers, you could spend time with your colleagues. Now we routinely expect volumes to be at plus 100%. Right now in the viral season, we are instructed to maintain volumes up to 120%. That's just normal. Those aren't great high quality jobs that are gonna help us to retain those staff. And the reason that retention is even more important is because of who we're hiring in terms of those highly expert staff. Um, we did our, our barbecue a couple weeks ago at Holland Bloorview. Um, we had the best day in October, it was 27 degrees, it was better than any August day. So we really lucked out and I met a lot of young nurses. Um, they're uh, nurses from the new graduate guarantee. They're brand new nurses. We used to say, we didn't hire anyone who didn't have pediatrics expertise. We don't have that luxury anymore. <clears throat> who is training those young, keen, intelligent people. Those are our seasoned professionals who we need to retain and we need to retain them by offering them an excellent work life. And if we don't do that, we're not gonna be able to retain those new young professionals who are coming in. So that to me is the complexity. It's not the bums in seats. 
It's the story of how we're creating really tremendously um, excellent jobs, every single one. I'll just say one last thing. You know, we talk about HHR challenges and we can all throw out statistics about our teams. It's a one by one, every individual issue. You know, Ronnie talked about scoliosis. We had our medical advisory committee meeting yesterday morning. We credentialed your new orthopedic surgeon. We'll be able to run ortho clinics at Holland Bloorview. I cannot, people practically, it was practically a standing ovation because those kids who are waiting a year are also the Holland Bloorview clients and they are in pain. They're not going to school. They're not able to uh, eat properly. They're not able to have any kind of quality of life, but it's that one orthopedic surgeon. So now we're going at Holland Bloorview from one to two. That is a huge difference. And that's what starts to address that surgical long waiter backlog that, that Ronnie was able to talk to. So it's a one by one by one by one by one challenge. Um, and it's a challenge that I'm confident we can meet. It's not gonna happen immediately and it's not gonna happen by doing what we've always done before. And that's also what makes Make Kids Count special. Um, and it's something I think that we're all really uh, very proud of. Thank you. Um, maybe I'll go back to Jen and Bruce here for a moment. Um, so we, we, we've talked about um, inter, intervening early um, and there's the childhood intervening. Um, in terms of preventing chronic conditions and healthcare costs, why is it important to intervene early and what, what sort of barriers do you think we might have? Uh, thanks, Matt. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll start um, very quickly and turn it over to uh, to, to Jennifer because I'm really looking forward to hearing uh, Jen's response on this. But but I'll I'll just reflect us back first of all again to the to that such a key component around the fact that children are developing right. They're developing uh, again physically, socially, emotionally, um, and that is part of their life trajectory. Um, so we do focus so heavily on those windows, those times where it is most opportune, most critical to uh, identify and then intervene. And sometimes the interventions are medical, sometimes they're therapeutic, sometimes they are just social, um, and sometimes they're, they're educational. Um, so, uh, you know, that's, that really kind of, I think, drives home this, this notion of, uh, of, of, of early intervention, early identification. Now, barriers. Well, again, when we talk about, about children and youth, not surprisingly, the barriers are some ways similar to the rest of the healthcare system, right? The notion of, we are unfortunately quite silent, right? We're siloed in terms of, of uh, in, in the rest of the health system, primary care versus acute care versus community-based care versus, versus public health. But I'll remind you, when you go back to kids, then you bring in schools, the educational system, justice, uh, community-based uh, education environments outside of the formal school system. Um, and, you know, the, the, the list goes on and on. The, the impact, though, I'll just highlight for a second, the, the, the impact of, of, uh, of not addressing those, uh, those opportunities for intervention is in the moment but again, then it is in the long term because it affects the trajectory of those children. So a couple of, of recent studies uh, just in the last month, uh, Conference Board of Canada working with Children's Healthcare Canada looked at, Ronnie shared the example of, of scoliosis, the financial impact of uh, the increased waiting across Canada for, for, uh, for scoliosis surgery estimated at about $45 million. 
Um, so that's one example. Let's let's look at some research out of uh, out of the University of Calgary, Susa Bensler, looking at kids with medical complexities. Um, if we could increase or improve by 15%, small amount, the identification, intervention, and addressing of those challenges projected the lifetime impact of those across Canada, $104 billion. Because you think about the difference when you don't address something at that window, but say between two and four years of age, that can have impact for 50, 60, 70 years later on functional ability, on social interactions, obviously on economic capacity and ultimately on the use of social programs. So there's, there's such a compelling argument for getting at this. And I'll just, I'll just close by saying, you know, that's why, uh, you know, the recognition that this group had around that connectedness across all of the systems is why we so enthusiastically come to, came together to develop this plan and why we're so excited that it has been um, uh, really embraced by the provincial government um, and by, by our, our colleagues working in the planning systems as well as in all of the different parts of the system to say, okay, yeah, you know what? We're making kids a priority now and we're focusing on getting them the care that they need when they need it. In case you didn't question, like the timing of your investment, Ontario government is fabulous because during COVID, there were 300,000 babies born in Ontario. In Ontario, one in eight of those children is born with a disability or developmental difference. These kids are now starting school. And I can tell you the pressure on the community-based services right now to support our educators. And we actually do have a program that delivers care in schools to help these kids reach those developmental milestones. You know, thank goodness we actually have this great news as of this summer because the pressures are enormous. Now, the value of this group here is that everyone sitting at this table provides every kind of care a child could need in this province. We have to keep working together. I don't want to add to Bruce's great answer because I think we need to go back to Matt because we've got to do a little bit chatting about mental health. Because <laughs> we actually haven't talked at all about mental health and we'll be in trouble with Tatum if we don't get there. So Tatum Wilson, CEO for, make sure I get it right, the Children's Mental Health of Ontario. Um, and, and maybe Ron, Ronnie, you might want to pipe in on this as well. Um, so the work you've undertaken together is unique. Um, you have hospitals coming together with community providers uh, to say we can't do this alone. You are also spanning physical, developmental, and mental health and two ministries, um, which no offense to any government in the room, I believe there is some, um, but we, we, we know we have a lot of hard work to do. Can you talk a little bit about why this integrated approach is so important? What does it matter? Uh, that we build capacity in the community at the same time as in hospitals. Why is it so important to look at this holistically? Thank you, Matt, and thanks. Thank you for the shout out, <laughs> Jen. Um, so yeah, so I'm the CEO of Children's Mental Health Ontario, and we represent Ontario's community-based, publicly funded child and youth mental health agencies. Um, and I would say the real privilege of being part of this group is there is often a tension between community and acute. And particularly, as Julia said, there's sort of these binary meetings with the ministry and to have all seven of us sitting at a table together and have their voices be louder about the need to invest in community 
was a huge difference. And in fact, we know resonated quite well with the government and sort of made the whole package make sense. In terms of the need in the community related to mental health and addictions, I mean, the numbers are just stark. I feel like I like to say this all the time. We have a four-year-old son. Today's his birthday. He's the best. And uh, <laughs> the thought of him uh, possibly having to wait. So the wait times in community-based child and youth mental health pre-pandemic, 28,000 kids on the wait list, an average of nine months across the province, and in the worst case scenarios, two and a half years. And now we are lucky enough that in our situation, we could pay for that care if we needed to, but many people can't. And so for me, that's just the starting point that we need to invest in the community just out of a sort of moral and ethical principle, but also it's good economically. And as Ronnie has said, from a big picture social impact, we know that families experience family breakdown. Uh, there is sort of issues with other siblings, those kind of things. It impacts kids' success in school. And the longer they have to wait for that care, the worse it is. And so um, thinking about working with hospitals, I mean, hospitals have an appropriate place in the stabilization of kids with mental health issues. But the CAIHAI data between during the pandemic that out of the top 10 reasons for hospitalizations for children and youth, I think one, two, four, and 10 were mental health related. And that's not where kids actually belong for their, <laughs> for their mental health care. So the investment in the community is the kind of way of doing things to frankly, ALC is a term that we often hear and think about as seniors, but these are ALC kids in these hospital beds. And it's not just in the pediatric hospitals, but across, across the acute care sector. So our sort of premise was a significant investment in the community will put take pressure off of the acute sector, but also this investment to sort of set up a system of care in our community will make sure that hospitals play their appropriate role related to kids. So what we're so grateful for with this money, and again, I have to acknowledge this year, we saw a 5% increase in base funding in the budget, and then a significant increase in funding through this Make Kids Count funding. But what was quite nice is that we weren't told, here's another 5%, you know, and as one of our members uses the expression spray and pray, which is just sort of 5% across the board, and you all get a little bit and the impact is sort of not known. What we are doing is working with this money to create a model that will actually sort of maximize the capacity and the value of the money. It will be sort of regionally based with networks of care. Um, and because I think one of the things that is also different about kids is while the volumes are increasing, you don't have these sort of, you could never have equal access across the province. What we want to work on is equitable access. And that is where kids can get the care that they need as close to home as possible. And for some kids, it may not be you know, directly in their home community, but really working on creating the pathways in partnership with the hospitals so that kids can get the care that they need and then get back to thriving as best as they can. And I think, you know, candidly, the economic argument just sort of speaks to itself. This is very common to me, to my, in, my, in my knowledge, but just as a reminder, you know, 70% of adults with mental health issues say that it started while they were children and youth. And so the ability to address those issues earlier, again, is not only the right thing to do, but it is the economically smart thing to do. And it will have, you know, as, as Jen has said, you know, we have this whole cohort of kids who are starting school and started in the pandemic and a whole cohort of kids who experienced the pandemic while in school. And so the better that we can support them in the community, I think, and with the endorsement of all of our partners here, and frankly, across the, across the acute sector that we know of, um, this, this money will go a really long way to, to make a big difference. So just to add to this, um, you heard about the historic investments uh, that have been made that are really incredible. But the other point, and I think Julia mentioned it earlier, is that all of us really thought about we need to do things differently. 
more money is not just going to solve the problem if you don't do things differently. And one of the things differently we are all trying to do is to really leverage our partnership with the community, more so than ever before. And I want to tell you a huge success story where we have now partnered with so far five, and it will probably grow, uh, community hospitals around tackling our surgical wait list. We have over 400 children already scheduled to go through surgeries there. The families want to do it. They feel supported. Sometimes it's our people who go there, but very often it's not. And then take that together with a few things that we internally change because we felt like we needed to change some some ways how we take care of our kids so that we can increase our, maximize our surgery time, maximize uh, the time of children who can go through the process. I mean, with these investments, we have now been able to stabilize our wait list. And that may sound to most of you, understandably so, like a low ball goal. And to some degree it is, but I can tell you before we were making these changes. Every single modeling we were looking at would tell us that we will never make a real dent in this wait list for the next five to seven years. And that's different now. And take some of the partnerships we have amongst us. Plus, I would like to talk about the partnerships we have with Ontario Health, who really have been a real partner here in trying to support some of the different things we are doing then I, I think we are on our way to make this really better. It will, I, I'm going to have to say it for the third time just to manage expectations. It's not going to happen tomorrow. But I think all of us here can now at least see the light at the end of the tunnel that we can make this happen. So down at the end here, is Nash Syed, who is the president for the Children's Hospital in London, London Health Sciences Center. We all know what time of year it is. I had, for the first time, COVID go through my house uh, three and a half weeks ago. Um, all four of us got it, and very quickly. It was not fun. So we know that we have flu season coming and COVID is coming. You know, it, it's all going to be ramp it again in, 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 over now in the next few months. How are you planning on measuring this and the outcomes um, and the impact? And how, how is this experience different for children and families? Well, thanks very much, Matt. And, and thank you all for taking the time. And if you're in pediatrics, thank you for everything you do. And if you're not in pediatrics, please know that all of us in pediatrics are trying to make our kids healthy. So when they come to your system of care, whatever you do, they're in a better shape. And it, it is a lot of work because I think as you've heard, pediatric care is not just about having babies. We have complexities, we've got specialties, we've got subspecialties. It's a very difficult space, but our job is to make them as healthy as possible. So the surge, one of the things the surge did for us was it shined a very clear light that child health had some serious gaps. Um, and that led to some really good things. One of those good things is, is that the government responded. They said, we realized that you were understaffed, under-resourced, and as you can hear, we got a great start at helping to make the system better. Um, the second thing that, that I think happened is, and I think you're hearing it is, the consequences to pediatrics to children is significantly worse over time 
than adults. And we can give you story upon story. And we have personal stories with patients and families that we've all sat with. So the consequences are, are dire, social, financial, for that family. I mean, it is literally breaking up families if we can't act quickly enough. So that's what's driving us. And the last is we realize that no one sector can solve it alone. We've got to work together. That's why you've got community. That's why we've got hospitals. We know that there's other hospitals that deal with kids and there's primary health care. We have to work as a system. So with all this great goodness came accountability. And so as we think about surge, and surge is just a small part of it, we'll get through surge. But it's what we're trying to do is build a better healthcare system for today and for tomorrow. There's accountability. And so we're being asked really clearly to say, okay, how are you going to show your impact? Well, I'll talk about two things really quickly. One is outcomes and one is experience for families and, and, our, and the kids we care for. So from an outcome standpoint, we're being very clear, we have to hire people. Going back to what Julia talked about. We have to hire people and resources, and that's what we're being asked to prove. And, you know, we've had some success. The money helps, the interest helps. So, you know, we're hiring a, a, a full at, at Children's Hospital and London Health Science Center. We're hiring an eMERGE mental health team to go down and work in the eMERGE because we've seen more kids come through than I've ever seen in our lives, and the numbers are just going. I mean, it's a very sad state. So we've got this team and we wouldn't have been able to do it. So we're talking about child life. We're talking about child and youth counselors. We're talking about um, RNs. We're talking about, um, should say nurses. And we're also talking about um, social workers. So we're trying to increase our capacity. It's not happening as fast as we want, but it is definitely happening. And we're moving in the right direction. Um, the other outcome that we're looking for is just, you know, are we increasing our services? So and we often talk about surgery and, and what impact that's had. Between June and September, what we did was we reduced our wait list by 12%. And for us, that's huge. Like, it's significant. So we're, we're really proud and we're all working on our wait list because we know, as Ronnie had said, kids shouldn't have to wait. And when they do wait, there's a, there's a very difficult situation that, that impacts them and their families. Um, and so that's another focus. And then the other one is, uh, I've, I'm a data guy. So I've spent more time looking at data than I probably should share. But... <laughs> I, we've got people giving us, I mean, there's surveillance data that we get on a weekly basis. We have, um, you know, people know our capacity before even we know our capacity sometimes. Um, so there's capacity data, but there's also performance metrics that we are being asked to hold to. And so we'll say, they'll say, okay, if we're going to give you this, we need to start to see the bend in the you know, surgical wait times. And we are seeing it. it probably isn't as quick as everybody wants, but please remember, this is a very big ship that we're trying to turn over. Um, I think Alex talked about 20 years. So this is a big problem. The other, the other side of that is that we have to have better experiences and we're starting to see that. So from an experience standpoint, this money, this support, this awareness is allowing us to hire services that you don't have on the adult side. So child life specialists, child and youth counselors, we're, we're able to hire um, our first um, IPAC pharmacist. Um, we're able to hire a, a pharmacist for ambulatory care that we couldn't hire. So that's one major focus that we think is gonna change the experience. Another one is um, just education and training. We recognize the need that we are enhancing our education training capacity across Ontario so that people who are dealing with children who may not deal with them a lot have the awareness and the knowledge. And I think the last one I would close with is, is just as a system, I, I mean, I come from outside. I've never seen a system work so closely together and with Ontario Health, Ontario Health West, Ontario Health East, Central, North, I mean, everybody is working together with the ministry. 
so that we can make this change happen. And I would say, given that the announcement was in June, we've been working at this for years, but given it's in June, we've actually had significant success in the few months that we've been actively going at it. And just give us a little bit of time with all of your support. I think we're really gonna turn this around. So we're very excited. Ronnie wanted to say. I just want to, since you ask about search for the non-pediatric people here on, and online, like last year when we had these historic numbers of children literally overflowing our emergency rooms and the hospitals, I mean, the way how the system came together here in really leveraging tertiary care and community hospital collaborations I think it's worth mentioning to all of you was historic in of itself. And honestly, without sounding too dramatic, the single reason why we didn't have seminal events in children. When this all started, I think the nightmare that many of us who worked here and in any other hospital had is how many children are going to go to a hospital, don't get the care they need and have a catastrophic event happening that shouldn't be happening. And it didn't happen. And it didn't happen because we all came together through these partnerships and we have learned from them for this year. We're going to make them even better this year. That I think it's fair to say that all of us in the room, I see a lot of people in the room who actually have done this work and who are responsible for this work, are not quite as nervous as we were last year because we know we can now leverage partnerships that we never had. And that's what it's really all about and what we have been trying to do here and we were forced to do it in an acute crisis, and now we can just leverage the learnings for the future there. Thank you. So we're gonna get into some questions uh, with the audience now and questions online. Um, I thought I'd kind of kick us off, and um, Tatum, we, we, we talked about the ministries and mental health. Um, one of the things that I've heard since I've been involved in healthcare is siloed healthcare. Um, so we have the, with regards to mental health, you have the Ministry of Health, you have the Ministry of Education and the Solicitor General. Are they talking? Are they working together? Is there a plan in place? Um, yes, I, I mean, the short answer is yes. I think um, what has happened in some ways is it, the conversation has been moved along because of some things that have become evident. And I will say, not as to sound like a, compl a complainer, but um, one of the issues that we face that is a specific HHR challenge in the child-based community mental health sector is a differential wage, wage disparity between funding for social workers and mental health workers in the education system and the amount that they are able to get paid in the community sector. And it is, it is, it, the, it's such a stark challenge that we have anecdotal examples of people coming from our, from our agencies where staff will be hired and they'll be like, oh yeah, no, I'm, I'm here for a year and a half until I get a job in the education sector. But what I will say is the government has really come together to really better understand that implication. I would never suggest that they shouldn't be making investments in the education system, but what I think we need to work towards is sort of the policy creativity that allows that investment to be focused on the needs of the child and not on 
who gets paid to hire who where and how much they get paid. So the conversation is happening there. I think increasingly, I mean, Solicitor General, we also have youth justice at MCCSS. We also have significant overlap with child welfare. And from sort of an association perspective, we are working together on the kind of advocacy that we do there. I, I had in a previous life been involved in the child welfare redesign. And a lot of the focus on that was increasing capacity and in upstream services so that kids can avoid coming into care altogether. And is it perfect? No, but the conversation is certainly happening. And I think that this kind of sort of effort here lays the groundwork for building trust with government to say, you know, trust us a little bit to come up with solutions that will, again, find the kind of efficiencies that you want to find, but maximize and improve the outcomes for the kids that you want to have. So I, yeah, I think it's a conversation that's happening and, and more, to, more to be done. And, and, and Matt, <clears throat> for sure, there's a responsibility um, on the part of government, um, but there's also a responsibility, we have a responsibility in our communities um, to solve these problems, right? And so uh, I think everybody here has talked about, this isn't, it isn't it, we can't just scale up what we've been doing, that, that's, that's not gonna get us where we need to go. We need to use these investments to think of different ways to organize the work to make sure that kids get the care they need. So for example, in the mental health and addiction space in, in, in our part of the province, working through our, our Kids Come First Health team, we've set up um, One Call, One Click, which is uh, an integration of 24 child and youth mental health agencies. So one way in, case management, and to, to speak to the schools, all school-based referrals um, coming in through that platform. Uh, there's, there's probably not enough, but there's, there's a dozen or so uh, mental health and addictions nurses in schools that are part of one call one click and so you know and we we and and there's make kids count investment going into shoring that up uh, so that we are able to, um, to to intervene early provide the supports and deal with the reality and this is how everything is interconnected one in four kids in chio's emergency department in mental health crisis um, are back within six months. That, that, that's the historic um, uh, reality. And so that's the problem we're trying to solve because if it, that, that's not where they're going to get uh, uh, in, in, enduring support uh, for uh, the challenges they're facing. And so, um, I, you know, we all have, and you've been hearing some of the examples, but we, we, we've all been in, in our communities with our partners uh, thinking about how we put things together uh, for kids, the kids and families who depend on us. Okay. Supporting this field and spread of something. We have seven sites. And thinking of step down, like stepping kids up and down each year, um, and the role of hospitals in that. And I'm curious if any of you can comment on the ways in which you might develop partnerships or referral pathways and connections where. Uh, thinking about cultural safety, thinking about where workers reflect the youth that are seeking care, especially mental health is of great importance. And I wonder if you comment at all, at all on any work happening um, in that space to really address, um, as we've heard, you know, early intervention, we know for black populations it happens much later, um, and we know the importance of I'm going to ask a friend. <laughs> Taking advantage of our executive director of mental health, Daryl, do you want to talk about this from the hospital perspective, at least what we are doing here? 
I know it's unfair. It's my home territory, <laughs> but he's here. Nothing like putting me on the spot. Um, but uh, as you may know, we, we have actually begun in recent months um, a significant collaborative with the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. So um, we have looked at your system, uh, One Call, One Click, and, and a number of others. We are looking at um, coordinating efforts uh, across the city to start to begin with. And this is being done, of course, in collaboration with our lead agency um, in parallel. Um, but in, in embedded in that are our efforts uh, for equity, diversity, inclusion. Uh, it's embedded in everything we do. We're involving um, family caregivers in our planning um, so that we have their perspectives as well and how we approach this as a, as a municipality, I would say with the two academic hospitals. So, oh, go, no, if you have, with just, I mean, it's actually a great question because, so CMHO has been working on an equity strategy related to our members, also for our organization, but um, sort of a, a strategy related to the quality and equity of care that we want to deliver. But it, we have not thought about that in terms of the relationships with hospitals and step up and step down and how we marry what I'm sure all of our, the hospitals here have excellent um, diversity, equity, and inclusion strategies. So it is a good point, and it's something to think about. I think um, I'm a Black racialized man who's married to a man, so equity is incredibly important. And I think the way that you, um, you know, the, the, the reminder to do these kind of things, I think, is what will make the difference. And I know that in our equity strategy that we're working on with C at CMHO, invaluable has been the youth and family engagement on it and sort of sharing the experiences of what it means to have to either explain cultural norms about sort of social and interaction and family behaviors um, down to everything. I mean, in child welfare, it's the same kind of thing, you know, like issues of discipline and like in different ways in which things play themselves out in families. So I think what I would say is that if, if, if there's advice that you're seeking would be, you know, active engagement with, with the, the users of your and clients of your programs but also don't hesitate to reach out to us and to, I would assume the hospitals where the step up and step down is happening to sort of figure out how the strategies can, can align with each other. And Jill, I just, sorry, I just want to add, I love the fact that you talked about the team because I know we all have equity strategies. It's, it's been part of Ontario Health's work. We have to create a sense of belonging because that's what's actually going to affect the children significantly. So I, I think we're all working on equity, but I think we all know that we want to do a little bit more about that. Um, the other thing that I, we, we've got to create that greater connection. So we hired an, we, we actually created a position for an education liaison because we saw our kids, especially some of our underserved marginalized kids, um, with the large indigenous population that we serve, not getting what they need. And it is not just about health care. It's also about the health system, it's social system, it's education system. So I think we've got to have a number of these solutions come together and, and represent those who we serve coming through our doors. So just wondering if you can expand on that um, and the, the timing of a online question kind of works with this is specific to um, equitable access for the North. Um, how is that investment play here? Jen, do you want to? So, so I, I could, do you want to go? Oh, so I mean, for, for the North, I think we, Many of us all have responsibilities. So our, our population goes all the way up to sort of Northern Ontario. So our job is to maintain connection. So the recent work around the, um, uh, the regional cardiac care educators is a good example. 
where you know I think we're serving sort of twelve um, smaller hospital. Um, I don't want to. They, they, I think somebody referred to Ms. Post, but there's, there's smaller hospitals that we are connecting with. And I think all of our hospitals have a connection with the North to provide services and, and connection to, not only in direct care, but education, resources. Our pain program goes up to the North and they come down. Um, so to, to do the transfer of knowledge. Yeah. yeah, so I think what I want to add to this, I think we all have uh, collaborations with uh, the Northern communities. It's at least something that we are here working very actively on on developing. What, what one of the key things or key learnings for me has been over the last two years is what we have done a lot is trying to think about, can we send people over there uh, once in a while to, to support uh, clinics and, and to support activities? And, and it has shifted now a little bit more into how are we going to support the communities in building capacity within. And to me, that is the key when you look at the investments that we are trying to help train professionals in the communities, even if they, by design or by definition, let's take it this way, are not allowed to do certain things or not necessarily trained in a school to do certain things. That doesn't mean that we cannot practically support and teach them how to do certain things. That was probably one of the biggest learnings I've had over the last two years. And that is what we are trying to focus on now. How, we can, how can we be kind of the support for everyone, but really help the capacity within? Because I think that is the only way to really solve that problem. And I would just, I mean, this sort of speaks very much to the issue that I was saying before about sort of a hub and spoke model for particularly treating uh, kids with intensive need. Um, I was just in Timmins a couple of weeks ago and walked by a map of where their sites are for Neofax, which is the Northeastern Ontario Family and Children's Services. And their sites span a geography that is the same size as New Brunswick. <laughs> so the idea of, for example, every one of those communities having access to live-in treatment for, for uh, children or youth who might need it, it, it just isn't practical or feasible. But that being said, I also think we need to start exploring what might be unequal investments, so more money in the North to make sure there is a base level of services to maximize the capacity to treat kids close to home as much as possible, but then remember and keep on supporting the sort of family and wraparound supports that are required if a child has to go down to Ottawa or go down to Sault Ste. Marie or way in the south in Barrie or something like that to get the kind of treatment that they need. But it really just was a stark reminder looking at this map that goes from in Cochrane in the west to New Liskert in the east. I was like, how big is that? And that one agency is serving all that population. So it's a challenge. And we hear regularly um, about the, the reality that there's just some services that are not available in some communities. And we need to figure out the ways to uh, make that available. And again, if I said, if it's not going to be available, ensure that the transitions to where it is available encompass all the care that that family needs to get. It. Okay, we have a question up there. Yes, hi, uh, my name is Dr. Wojcik. I'm a pediatric dentist. Um, I wanted to say that considering the uh, multi-billion dollar investment being considered right now by the federal government um, under the um, Canadian Dental Care Plan, and also uh, the current talks between the Ontario Dental Association and the Ontario government, 
Has your group considered um, establishing a joint plan for pediatric oral health, pediatric dental health, um, to, 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 to be able to uh, offer a voice uh, as to uh, what is needed for, for pediatric oral health in, in the specialized sector, in the hospital sector, and in the community sector? Because um, dental problems are one of the most prevalent problems in the pediatric population uh, and, and one of the most frequent uh, surgery done in, in, in ORs in Canada uh, under the age of five. Well, I'm just going to welcome somebody from, yes. Eastern, somebody from Eastern Ontario who's here. So. Um, so nice to see you, and um, uh, and you're. I was certainly at Chio, and I think probably at most of the children's hospitals across, certainly across the country. You're right. Dental surgery is 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 the the by volume most um, uh, most frequent uh, surgical procedure, and and I think that's a really um, interesting conversation to see how we can leverage the the federal investment on the preventative side. Um, to help uh, keep kids out of hospital. I think that applies also on, on vision care, I think is another area where I think there's lots of opportunities to think about how we improve screening early um, uh, to, uh, uh, to, to, for all the reasons you've been hearing about, uh, promote uh, early intervention. Uh, and, and I do think and we're, I think all of us or most of us are off to a meeting in about half an hour to talk about how do we better from a planning perspective, uh, connect the dots uh, in in the Ontario healthcare system. So I think those are all the kinds of things that are on 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 the table for sure. Yeah, let's chat. <laughs> Let, let's talk. I mean, what what along with I, I want to give credit. This is this is not about what's happened. This is right sizing pediatric healthcare. What's next, right? And you know, if when I think about it, I am very excited about the uh, the level of focus and the sense that uh, there's a greater recognition that, that, that children and youth need to be a priority, a priority in healthcare, but also a priority in health and a priority across the system. The fact that the federal government, um, you know, has, has focused on childcare, so focusing on dental care, there, there is a little bit of a recognition there that that's because of, now, sometimes it's about the economic impact, but because of the impact of, of, of uh, really ensuring we have the best for, for children, youth, and families. So, you know, we've got momentum now to, uh, we've, we've got a focus, we've got a, a level of, uh, of, of really um, intensity and in the fire lit under, um, under planners, under, uh, under providers. Um, and under under government, so uh, you know, Alex mentioned provincial council for maternal child health uh, meeting immediately after this meeting. We're going to run off. I'm going to force these folks to, to, to run off immediately to uh, to again engage in the okay. So so what next? How can we better um, ensure a continued focus and continued innovation and decision making in relation to, um, to to children, youth, and families, including prenatally. So dental care is just a great example. So I'm going to go back online for a question here. And again, this is open to anybody who wants to, um, to answer it. Uh, we've talked about intervention. We've talked about prevention. What role does public health play? What role does public health not play? Yeah. <laughs> 
So, you know, and, and, and certainly, you know, one of, the, one of the alarming things we've seen, of course, is a, it is a decline in vaccination immunization rates for routine childhood immunization in Ontario in the last, uh, um, in the last number of years. Uh, um, you know, we just, we just, we just, you know, we've had measles and chicken pox uh, in our, in our hospital last, last couple of years. The, the, the young resident, when we had a chicken pox outbreak, the, the residents and the young staff physicians actually didn't know what it was because they'd never seen it before, right? Um, and, you know, we've seen uh, um, in other parts of the world, uh, you know, um, measles, polio. So, so I think the, the focus on vaccination is, 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 is really crucial. In our region, again, since kids come first, we are working on a vaccination catch-up campaign um, uh, because we're now, we're now in a circumstance where uh, uh, 14% of kids in Ontario aren't attached to a family physician. Um, and, uh, and when, you know, we're certainly hearing from families that, um, uh, you know, they have a baby and, and their family dog won't, won't see the baby. Um, uh, and so, you know, I, th I think we can, we can help with that um, collectively, but, I, you know, I think it speaks to uh, the bolstering of the primary care um, system and working with, and, and I think for all of us in the work we do, primary care and public health are our key partners. So we have time for one last question and we are going to go up to the top there. Hi, uh, thanks for all this. I um, love the fact that all the cross collaboration you talk about and before you talked about the Northern towns um, and I'm based in Northwestern Ontario. So, um, we talked a lot about the collaboration between uh, organizations within Ontario, but up in the north, we do have, it's closer to, to, to stay closer to home. We have to go across the border and um, get services there across the provincial border. Um, so is there any discussion or talk about how that might play into it and the collaboration um, across borders as well to make sure we keep people closer to home and provide services, more equitable services that way. Yeah, it's such a great question. And, and like Bruce said, you know, everyone uh, today is really helping us with the what's next part of this. <laughs> um, we're really proud of what we achieved, but we know there's more. So these have been great, um, great observations. And um, Children's Healthcare Canada, uh, is the national organization that, that brings us all together. And, and I succeeded Bruce as the chair of the board. So um, very proud to be able to do that integrative work. Um, and you know, your, your point is so well taken and we see this so much, especially when we go into the north of the country and our, our Northern friends remind us that when we talk about Thunder Bay and Sudbury, that's south. Um, and so uh, not limiting ourselves, uh, in those ways, I think is going to be critically important. And, and uh, you know, Children's Healthcare Canada has been uh, really working hard to get the other provinces to make a similar kind of investment, the investment Ontario has made. Um, and to really give credit where credit is due, when the government, the federal government announced the $2 billion of urgent funding um, and highlighted pediatrics as an area of investment, only, um, you know, the only investment we've seen, uh, not, not that federal money, but provincial money has been in this province. So I think working together across those provincial borders as and we have the groups that pull us together, bringing leaders together to identify where that investment will make the most difference for kids. 
Um, and, and I think there's been a lot of interest across the country in what we've done here. So I know we're, you know, we're presenting that at Children's Healthcare Canada Conference in, in Vancouver in December. There's a lot of interest. And what were the factors that made you successful, your collaboration successful? What were the factors that made your partnership with uh, public policymakers and funders successful? Um, that's the geeky sausage making of all of this work. And, um, and that's important work that we're gonna continue to do. And I think we're all committed to being part of and, and sharing with other parts of this country. But I actually think you bring up something really important, what, uh, at least from my perspective, we probably haven't explored enough. We have a lot of interprovincial collaborations around special treatments that can only happen maybe here. But to talk about interprovincial collaborations around some of the patient populations that we are trying to help support capacity, but do that really in isolation is a really good idea. And I think Bill will give that some thought. That was really good, thank you. And I think that part of that what's next is we know that we have to build capacity in our system. And so, and I think Ronnie said it really well, which is it's not us sort of just trying to spoon feed people. We have to actually create greater levels of capacity. And part of that will be through conversations and connections. I think what we've all realized is that like, you know, the, the, the four children's hospitals with Holland Bloorview is, is not enough for serving the kids of Ontario. We need our community agencies and we've got to create those connections and those relationships. I, I would say that a lot of the relationships have been developed over the last a um, couple of months, like I'm, I'm speaking with Youth Opportunities Unlimited. I'm speaking with Vanier. We're trying to move services out of the hospital so that we can do what we do really well. Yeah, and maybe I'll, I'll just close. We we often think of the, the adage, you know, it takes a community to raise a child, right? And what that means to me is every member of the community cares about raising children, right? And so... We're at this place now where if we're refocused on making kids and youth a priority nationally, provincially, regionally, locally, all of us coming together, then we'll be able to get at that kind of problem. With that, we are out of time. Um, so again, thank you, everybody. I know you guys have got to run. You have another meeting. Um, but I appreciate you coming in. And thank you. Have a wonderful day. Two, one, two, three.